assimilated in ways that are uh, radically discontinuous with his own aims. In 1509, John Calvin is born in Noyon in Picardy, and he's 26 years younger than Luther, and he couldn't be more different in temperament. Luther was the son of a peasant. Calvin is the son of a, of a, of a uh, cathedral notary, all right, in Noyon, and that's more prosperous than it sounds. It's more like being the son of a lawyer. Um, he was trained not as a theologian like Luther, but as a humanist. And his first book was a commentary on Seneca's De Clementia, a treatise on good government by the Roman philosopher. All right. So he's, his, his, his mental, educational, cultural world is as different from Luther as you can get. All right. Whereas, as I mentioned earlier, whereas Luther's principal motive was how can I access God's grace? Calvin, I believe, was a, a sense of sort of radical self-confidence that he had been enlightened with true religion. And he tells us in one of his few autobiographical reflections that before a year had passed, he was in the University of Paris at the time, before a year had passed, um, anyone yearning after pure religion was coming to me to learn. All right. So a tremendous hubris about his, about his religious enlightenment. Okay. And uh, Calvin's uh, first major... Uh, theological work, not his, not his first one, but his first really big sort of international bestseller was the Institutes of the Christian Religion in 1536. And he writes a preface in that document to François Premier, the king of France, who was hanging Protestants off the balcony at Amboise. Okay? And the, the letter, the prefatory epistle to Francis, is precisely an apology for the Reformation that answers the problem of social discord and disharmony. So don't confuse the Reformation. Calvin says, with all of these people that are running around being crazy and anarchical and you know attacking civil society, he says that's not the real Reformation. And the solution, says Calvin, all right, and it's not justification by faith alone, although he definitely talks about that. The solution, says Calvin, is what he calls the scepter, which is a which is a symbol of rule, of course, the scepter of the word of God. Okay, and by which, and I've already alluded to this, Calvin does not mean widespread dissemination of the text of the Bible. He means liturgical preaching. Because keep in mind, at this time, preaching is not the characteristic form of the Mass. All right, Preaching is something that takes place outside of the Mass. So for Calvin, the great revolution of the Reformation is to bring the preaching ministry of the text of the Bible back into the church's liturgy. All right, and to place it there front and center in the center of Christian worship. And he believes, Calvin is an ideologue, and he's very naive in my view, but Calvin believes that if we have liturgical preaching of Scripture, it will bring social cohesion and passivity, right? that it will solve the problem of revolutionary religion. And the reason the common people are going crazy is because the bishops didn't preach the Bible. And if only the bishops had preached the Bible, then we wouldn't have all this chaos. Now, that argument is made explicitly in 1522 by Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich. All right, Zwingli makes, writes a book called The Clarity and Certainty of the Word of God. And in one of the supreme ironies of historical theology, Zwingli argues, look at all this diversity in Catholic theology. All these scholastic theologians who, don't, who can't agree with one another on anything. Once we have the clear and certain word of God as our rule of faith, we'll have perfect unanimity in, Christian, in the Christian religion. Right? He argues that explicitly. He could not have been more wrong, right? But, I mean, that's, that's the view, right? That the Bible is just perspicuous. It's just clear and obvious what it means. 
And the reason for all the theological diversity is a failure in the pastoral ministry of preaching. That's where Calvin's coming from, okay? So in that vein, he's hired uh, in Geneva to be a reader in Holy Scripture, which is, I mean, he's basically a lector is what he's hired to do, all right? But he's a tremendous intellect, and he, he wants to go even further. So the first thing that he attempts to do in Geneva is to impose a catechism on the entire city and a, and a common confession of faith and make everybody subscribe by force of law. Okay, And, of course, he feels perfectly adequate to be the guy that writes the Catechism and the Confession of Faith. And that was, if that wasn't bad enough, he also demands the right to excommunicate and to examine all of the lay people on their religious faith and morals prior to reception of Holy Communion. And he insists that people go to Communion weekly. This at a time when people were used to going to Communion how often? Annually. All right. So what Calvin has just done in 1537, and he is... 28 years old, is say, give me jurisdiction in a very tangible way over the social and religious lives of everybody in the city so that I can examine them on the quality of their moral and spiritual life with the authority to excommunicate. All right? He got kicked out. All right? They ran him out of Geneva. They, they were like, no, thank you. Okay? <laughs> um, and so he goes to Strasbourg and, and hooks up with Martin Bützer, the Swiss reformer, in that city, which is a German-speaking city, and he becomes the pastor of the French-speaking refugee church there. And while he is in Strasbourg, he writes his first treatise in French. He's written a lot in Latin up to this point, but Calvin in 1540 writes the first French theological treatise of his career uh, with wide dissemination. And uh, what do you think that it is about? What do you think Calvin writes? This, this is, so up to, up to now, he's been writing in Latin. All of a sudden, he switches into the vernacular. Now he's writing in French, so he's intending this to be read by the lay people. All right, what is the topic of his of his first major French theological treatise? It is the Eucharist. It's the Eucharist. Okay, why the Eucharist? Well, keep in mind what is motivating Calvin. He wants above all to bring unity and passivity to the to the Protestant movement. He wants to counter the objection that Protestantism is a source of disunity. The biggest source of disunity in religious life in the time, and especially in the Protestant religious life, was the doctrine of the Eucharist. Okay? Um, Luther believed very strongly in the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Very strongly. Okay? Zwingli, in Switzerland, denied it. This is what Luther said about Zwingli. One side must be the devil and God's enemy. There is no middle ground. Ulrich Zwingli is completely perverted and has entirely lost Christ. Okay, strong words, fighting words, okay? Um, why was Luther so insistent on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? Well, there are many reasons. This is my favorite. Martin Luther writes, the witness of the entire Holy Christian Church, even if we had nothing else, should be enough for us to maintain this doctrine and neither listen to nor tolerate any sectarian objections. For it is dangerous and terrible to hear or believe anything contrary to the common witness, faith, and doctrine which the entire Holy Christian Church has maintained from the beginning until now for more than 1,500 years throughout the world. Would that Luther had been more consistent. Okay. Why does he believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? Luther says, well, every single solitary Christian for 1,500 years has believed this everywhere, and on the authority of sacred tradition, we've got to believe it. Okay. Go figure. <laughs> All right. Um, so in 1540, Calvin writes, and, and Zwingli is the opposite, right? Zwingli denies it. Calvin writes this little book called A Little Treatise on the Lord's Supper, Le Petit Tracté de la Sainte Seine. 
I'm going to read you a few lines from the introduction, okay? Because they're emblematic. They're really are sort of very illustrative of what's going on. Calvin writes, he says, As the holy sacrament of the supper of our Lord Jesus Christ has long been the subject of several important errors, and in these past years has been anew enveloped in diverse opinions and contentious disputes. Now he's talking about the disputes between Lutherans and the Swiss Protestants. It is no wonder if many weak consciences cannot fairly resolve what view they ought to take, but remain in doubt and perplexity, waiting till all contention being laid aside, the servants of God come to some agreement upon it. Now, who are these servants of God that he's talking about? He's talking about the Protestant reformers. So he said, look, the Eucharist is being all torn up today with controversy, and the common people don't know what to believe. Because Luther says one thing, Zwingli says another, and they're going to sit there and hold their breath until the servants of God come to some agreement. Okay? However, as it is a very perilous thing to have no certainty on an ordinance, the understanding of which is so requisite for our salvation, you must have certainty on Eucharistic doctrine because this is necessary for salvation. How many of you know Protestants today that believe that the proper Eucharistic doctrine is necessary for salvation? I don't know a single one that says that. Okay? I have thought it might be very useful labor to treat briefly and nevertheless clearly to deduce a summary of what is necessary to be known, and I may add that I have been requested to do some by some worthy persons whom I could not refuse without neglecting my duty. In order to rid ourselves of all difficulty, it is expedient to attend to the order which I have determined to follow. So Calvin's going to clear up the problem. Now, to anyone familiar with modern evangelical Protestantism, several things should strike you as very odd about this passage. Number one, why would Calvin identify proper Eucharistic doctrine as necessary for salvation? That does not sound like any Protestantism I encounter today. Number two, why would doctrinal disagreement over something as seemingly unimportant as the Eucharist, and now I'm speaking now from the point of view of a 20th century Protestant, why would doctrinal disagreement over the Eucharist be so scandalous? The Protestant Church today tolerates much deeper disagreement over the nature of God, Christ, the Church, the moral life, and the nature and extent of salvation. Finally, why would Calvin think that he could bring this desired unity and that he personally had a duty to do so? And then what about the matter of the Eucharist? What, is, what does he actually say at the end of the day is the true doctrine of the Eucharist? He writes, We must confess then that if the representation which God gives us in the supper is true. Okay, what, is, what is being represented in the, trupper, in the supper? Well, bread represents body, right? Okay. If that's true, then the internal substance of the sacrament is conjoined with the visible sign. And as the bread is distributed to us by the hand, so the body of Christ is communicated to us in order that we may be made partakers of it. Though there should be nothing more, we have good cause to be satisfied when we understand that Jesus Christ gives us in the supper the proper substance of his body and blood in order that we may possess it fully and in possessing it have a part in all his blessings. John Calvin. 1540, Petit Tracté de la In the communication of the supper, Jesus gives us the proper substance. He uses the word substance, substantia, the proper substance of his body and blood, so that possessing it, we may share in all his benefits. The doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist 
is Calvinistic and Protestant. Now, how does Calvin think that happens? He rejects transubstantiation as the mode. All right. I won't. Well, I'll tell you briefly what he thinks, how he thinks it happens. All right. Luther said the body of Christ is locally present. Zwingli says it's only symbolically present. Calvin splits the difference. Okay. What Calvin says is the substance of Christ is truly communicated in the supper, but without a local presence, so that Jesus' body remains in heaven, my body is on earth, and mystically through the power of the Holy Spirit, the two are somehow connected in the sacramental act, all right, such that the bread remains bread, but the proper substance of Christ's body is still communicated. Now, where the heck did he get that from? Okay. It basically is an irenic doctrine meant to reconcile the Zwinglians and the Lutherans. Okay, that's how I read it. Okay, because that's not in the Bible. That's certainly not in the tradition. All right, he makes it up, I think. Right, basically to try to bring two sides together on affirming both that this is just bread and that you've got the true substantial partaking of Christ at the same time. But that's Calvin's position. Okay, he says it's absolutely necessary for salvation. He insists on absolute theological uniformity um, and. He has an extremely elitist view of the church's constitution, namely one in which the servants of God tell the common people what to think and believe. Okay. Now, that's Calvin. Um, what happens with Calvin? Well, when he goes back to Geneva in the 1540s, and he does get called back, he, he goes right back to the same program, which is, I'm going to examine you for communion, um, you know, the, the liturgy and the sacraments and preaching is the core of the church's religious life. I have to evaluate you on your faith and morals. Um, and, and he means that uh, with the utmost seriousness. Uh, so one of the big controversies that breaks out in the 1540s is over the imposition of baptismal names in Geneva. Um, uh, lay people would bring their babies for baptism, and the Reformed pastor would say, what do you name this child? And they would say, Francois, Francis. Well, that's a saint's name. Can't have that. So the, so the Reformed pastor says, I baptize thee, Abraham. And just doesn't accept the parents' names. All right? That's the extent to which the Reformed pastorate took on the authority to tell the lay people how to live their lives, even to the extent of telling them how they had to name their children. This did not make them popular. Okay? Um, and they routinely called up lay people in front of the consistory. That was their church tribunal all right, to examine them on the quality of their moral or religious lives. Calvin didn't get the right to excommunicate legally until 1555. Once he got it, 15% of the, of the city got excommunicated. Okay. William Monter is a historian of Geneva who estimates that's the, the percent of the population that got excommunicated. So Calvin made a lot of enemies. Now, why did they keep him on? Well, Calvin was absolutely brilliant. I mean, he was a, an astonishingly brilliant character, an incredible writer, an incredibly powerful rhetorical speaker. Who, who really was the intellectual bright light for the entire Protestant movement internationally. It's hard to kick a guy like that out of your city, okay? But he built up a lot of resentment, and the local Genevans that lived there viewed him as a foreign import, as a Frenchman that came in there and tried to make himself the Pope, all right? And they used that language. They said, here's Calvin trying to make himself another Pope, okay? But he brought with him a tremendous wave of French immigration that overwhelmed the electorate and got the franchise, and essentially Calvin... Uh, it, it, through immigration and electoral politics, got his own people into power in the city government so that the native Genevans were kind of overwhelmed by the whole thing and they became more or less powerless to get rid of him. But at one point, a woman named Jean, uh, Jean Pinier gets called before the consistory 
And she, she puts her finger on the key problem with Calvinism and his doctrine of religious authority. All right. Jean Pinier says, under interrogation, she says, do we have to believe the preachers if they say there is no water in the Rhone River? All right. Do I have to believe if you teach something that's manifestly absurd? Now, you know, that, that's, uh, so that's, that's the social situation in Geneva. So Calvin's trying to hold this whole picture together, and he's got a lot of social disorder on his hands. So his attempts to, to bring this great social harmony and peace through doctrinal preaching is backfiring on him. All right, and he's instead he's he's this 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 uh, social revolution is welling up on his own watch. And in that context, Calvin writes another French treatise, and this one in 1549, interestingly, on the practice of astrology. Why does Calvin write on astrology? Well, astrology is a superstition, all right? And the way Calvin describes astrology, the problem with astrology is not the claim that the stars influence human events. He doesn't have a problem with that claim. He says the problem with astrology is the claim that we can reliably discern what that influence is. So the people who rely on astrological argument, uh, almanacs disagree with one another, and they, 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 they get factious, all right? They can't decide whether a moment is auspicious or not. So astrology is impractical, all right, and it creates social discord. And so it becomes for him a symbol of what happens in a fractious church when people will not submit to religious authority. It becomes fractured, and it's a superstition like unto astrology. So the fact that you guys aren't listening to me when I talk means that you're superstitious, right? Because I'm an authority, and I could clear this thing up if you would only pay attention to me. All right. And in that context, this is what Calvin writes about the people in Geneva. He says, Every state of life has its own gospel to itself. See, problem of theological diversity. Which they forge for themselves according to their appetites. In such a way that there is as great a diversity between the gospel of the court, the gospel of justices and lawyers, and the gospel of merchants, as there is between coins of different denominations. Ironic that he uses that word, isn't it? Okay. So here's Calvin in 1549, utterly rejecting the doctrine of denominationalism. Now he doesn't have obviously the ideology of denominationalism in mind. All right. It's just a it's just a, a, a an ironic happenstance that he uses the word denomination there. All right. But the principle remains that in Calvin's mind, good church authority leads to complete theological uniformity, and that there is any theological differentiation, any kind of diversity at all, is a sign of superstition. And we know from other contexts that Calvin believed that superstition was a blasphemy that had to be repressed with the sword. Okay, so here we've got a guy who believes in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, believes that proper pastoral ministry is to tell the common people what to believe, and rejects theological diversity and denominationalism as a superstition, and one that ought to be violently suppressed. Now, the, um, I already mentioned to you earlier a little bit about the Bolsic affair. I might just tell you the details of this story. Again, Bolsic is a physician who converts to the Protestant faith. He's a learned man, all right? He knows the Bible. He knows the, the, the patristic literature. He knows the, the writings of the theologians, Protestant and otherwise. And uh, what I didn't tell you about the controversies of the 1540s is when Calvin would critique the superstitious people in his congregation, he imported his doctrine of predestination. Everybody who listens to me is predestined and elect. The people who disagree with me are reprobates and going to hell. All right. So he predestination for Calvin. You've always heard of it about this theological abstraction. For him, it had real political power. Okay. 
So the people that disagreed with him did not like his doctrine of predestination, all right? Because they were they made out to going to hell on this doctrine, all right? So here comes Balsic, and Balsic says, Calvin's doctrine of predestination is wrong, and here's why biblically. He got a ton of popular support. He got a ton of popular support. The, the common people rallied to Balsic's defense. It's one of the reasons that Calvin was not able to execute him. And uh, so Calvin accuses Balsic of shaking the faith of the simple in this all-important doctrine of predestination. Balsic was tumultuously haranguing the people, and he was making a scandal in the church. Um, the ministers complained about the level of popular support that Balsic had generated. All right. So, and in that context, I already read to you the citation from Balsic, where he says, look, I have the Spirit of God just like you do. I've got the text of the Bible just like you do. I'm going to interpret the Bible in light, by the way, of the teachings of the fathers and other Protestant theologians like Philip Melanchthon who think you're wrong. And I want to engage you in a theological argument about the right way to understand this text. Now, that, that's a position that is perfectly intelligible to a Protestant today, and Calvin utterly repudiates it and tries to have Balsic executed for his temerity. All right, so here's John Calvin, a guy who shows up on the scene 26 years after Martin Luther, absolutely determined to bring order and peace to the Protestant movement by insisting on what? The role of the, of the minister. To, he says to Sadaleto, we admit therefore that ecclesiastical pastors are to be heard just like Christ himself. Scriptural interpretation is to be kept whole and entire and pure among believers and charged to the pastors and teachers. All right, the interpretation of the Bible, the authoritative ruling of the church, in order to uh, suppress theological diversity and to form a spirituality based on liturgy and sacraments. This is Calvin's vision of theological reform. It is an intensely Catholic vision. The only thing not Catholic about it is he puts himself at the head. He makes himself the Pope, all right? And he rejects the Roman hierarchy. Okay, now, um, why did Catholics, what, what, excuse me, since Calvin's ideas have some basis in the tradition, in the scriptures, right? I mean, the, the St. Paul tells us to agree on everything, 1 Corinthians 1.10, okay? Um, scripture tells us to obey our pastors, to obey our leaders. Scripture tells us that the church is to be the body of Christ, and Catholic unity is to be the rule of the day, all right? Scripture teaches us the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So since these, these Catholic ideas in Calvin are biblical, right, and traditional and sensible, why did Calvin fail, apart from the fact that he was kind of tyrannical, all right? I mean, because that's not a sufficient explanation either, because we've got tyrannical Catholic hierarchs as well. Why does Calvin fail? Why does this thing break down? Why is it lost to Protestantism today? Why are there so few Protestants, even Presbyterian Protestants, even Calvinist Protestants, that know these things about Calvin? What happened? All right, and this is my last piece of the puzzle, and then I'm done, okay? Because in order to break away from Rome, all right, and set up this ideal perfect church that he was working for. Calvin relied on Luther's doctrines. He relied on Luther's peculiar doctrines of justification by faith alone, scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, the, the, the so-called solas of the Reformation, sola fide, sola gratia, sola, you know, sola scripture, all the rest of it. He relied on those texts, on those documents, on those uh, doctrines. All right? And at the heart and soul of all of them all right, was Luther's desire for absolute total assurance of salvation. All right. That becomes kind of the spiritual heart of, of Protestantism. Can you know for sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die? And that becomes so important to the polemic that the Westminster Confession of Faith, all right, 17th century 
Reformed Protestant Confession of Faith, teaches that absolute assurance of salvation can be had with infallible certainty. So, you know, Protestant says, I don't believe in infallibility. You say, well, your, your own doctrinal statements teach you can have infallible certainty of one thing, your own salvation. Okay? Now, in Calvin's day, how did you have certainty of salvation? Well, you were in union with Calvin. You were in union with the church that he founded. You were in union with him in the sacraments. That was your objective visible sign that you were elect, and you had your certainty there through the visible means of grace. All right? That's a very Catholic idea. What happens when Calvinism juridically breaks down, as it does in England, right? because the English church is not Calvinist. The English church is Anglican, Episcopal, Henrician, Edwardian, Elizabethan. All right? But you bring Calvinist theology into that community. How does a Puritan, a Calvinist in England, who doesn't have a church gathered and formed the way Calvin would anticipate it, how does he derive his absolute assurance of salvation? And what the Puritans do is they begin to turn inward. They begin to introspect, and they begin to look at the quality of their interior lives for assurance of salvation. And if you've ever read Jonathan Edwards' book, The Religious Affections, it is a magnificent exemplar of this genre of literature, all right? Uh, composing tests of interior religious experience to discern whether or not I am elect, okay? And that dynamic, once set up, is acid that dissolves Calvin's robust doctrine of the church, all right? Because once I'm looking inward for my salvation, instead of looking outward to the sacramental mysteries, all right, because I've got to have this absolute guaranteed assurance, right, then I no longer need the visible church. And that's precisely what happens in the developed history of Protestantism. So by the time you get to the First Great Awakening in the 18th century, a guy like George Whitfield can say, do I have Whitfield's quote? I think I do have Whitfield's quote. Whitfield says, it was best to preach the new birth, being born again, and the power of godliness, and not to insist so much on the form, for people would never be brought to one mind about that, nor did Jesus Christ ever intend it. Right? So here you have in the 18th century the absolute embrace, positive embrace of denominationalism and interior religion. Right? And then by the time you get to the 20th century, you've got a guy like Billy Graham, who's completely forgotten about the Eucharist, and, uh, and church authority and ecclesiology and all the rest of it. He just preaches that doctrine of assurance. And once you've got that, once you're absolutely assured of your salvation, then why do I need the visible Catholic church? I don't need it at all, all right? So there was a deep incoherence at the heart of Calvin's theology. He couldn't hold his Lutheranism and his Catholicism together, all right? And so what happened is the Lutheranism won out over the Catholicism and the, the high church elements of, Catholic, of Calvin's theology vanish and dissipate which is why they lost to us today. All right, but as a historian, I'm reading this stuff and I'm going, wow, I've got to pick. Is it going to be, is it going to be the, Catholic Luther, the Catholic Calvin or the Lutheran, the Lutheran Calvin that wins and ultimately tested against his own standard of the teaching of Scripture and tradition? I had to go with the Catholic Calvin. All right, so um, summing up again from both lectures, I told you the 15th century Christians lived a vigorous Orthodox spirituality, but it was distinct from and in complementary in complementarity to the mass, the liturgy, and the clergy. A change in social location, the advent of printing, printing the ideology of corruption, reform, and anti-clericalism created fodder for radicalization. Luther's peculiar idiosyncratic theology was the perfect vehicle to ignite that tender. But the major reformers, especially Calvin, resisted the populism that they unleashed. Um, however, the Reformation solas could not contain the ecclesial structures that they wanted to retain, all right? 
Um, and so, you know, we have modern denominationalism. Today, the situation in the church is not that much different, to be honest with you. We have a tremendous treasure in Catholic tradition, but one that is often not adequately communicated. And so people, like they did in the 16th century, are looking for novel forms of religious association to meet that basic spiritual need of encounter with Christ, of conversion to Christ. And, and unfortunately, if they don't have that itch scratched in the Catholic Church, they will go elsewhere, and they do, unfortunately, in large numbers. The solution, I think, is ultimately the one proposed by the Second Vatican Council. This is what the Church says in Sacrosanctum Concilium. The Church, therefore, earnestly desires that Christ's faithful, when present at this mystery of faith, meaning the Mass, should not be there as strangers or silent spectators. On the contrary, through a good understanding of the rites and the prayers, they should take part in the sacred action, conscious of what they are doing, with devotion and full collaboration. They should be instructed by God's word and be nourished at the table of the Lord's body. They should give thanks to God by offering the immaculate victim, not only through the hands of the priest, but also with him. If we do that, we're fully Catholic and we keep everybody. Thanks. I'm done.